0: Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. What is Britain's place in the world? That's the question which the government's integrated review of security, defense, development and foreign policy, which was published on Tuesday, set out to answer. So on today's episode, we're going to be exploring the 114 page document to make sense of the Prime Minister's vision for global Britain and how to defend it. And then we're going to turn to the protests that have followed the awful murder of Sarah Everard and the questions about what needs to change for women to be able to walk home safely at night. The heavy-handed policing of a vigil in London brought calls for the resignation of Cressida Dick, the Chief Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. She says her officers were doing their duty as they saw it. We'll take a look at the thin blue line between public order and protest. Joining me in the studio today is Alex Thomas, who leads the IFG's work on the civil service. Hi, Alex. Hello, Bronwyn. We've also got Kath Haddon, our senior fellow on constitutional issues, also with us. Hi, Kath. Hi, Bronwyn. And we've got John McTurnan, an IFG senior fellow who is at the Clapham-Colon Vigil. Hi, John. Hi, Bronwyn. We're also joined by Sophia Gaston, the director of the British Foreign Policy Group. Hello, Sophia. Hi, Bronwyn. Great that you could join us. We'll come on to the detail in just a moment, but I'm guessing that for your group, the publication of the Integrated Review is a big deal.
1: A very big deal. Um, And it's been an enormous amount of work behind the scenes. Obviously, the whole of the UK's foreign policy community has been waiting with bated breath. But I think one of the very unusual and interesting things about this review is the degree of external consultation that went on.
0: Well, let's come on to that then. In fact, let's let's start with this review because it has been a long time in arriving, as you were hinting at. And then, when it did come, the review took readers on a sprawling journey across the globe, taking in nuclear threats, climate change, Brexit, artificial intelligence, cybercrime, China, uh, the Middle East, and much, much more. Alex, just take us through the the, the basics. What is this review? Who writes it? What's it for?
2: Yes, and it is sort of one of those gloriously obtuse Whitehall titles, an integrated review, you could hardly come up with something that was less clear about um, what it's there to do. But as you say, it is fundamentally about Britain's place in the world. And it's about drawing together all of the different strands of foreign policy, development policy, security policy, uh, defence policy, to try and bring them into a, a, a coherent whole. It's there to identify tensions and uh, trade-offs, and then it sets direction for future years and informs policy. It's written by civil servants. I think the other interesting thing, as well as what Sophia was just saying about uh, the level of consultation, is that this review has been written and is associated with somebody called John Bew, who's a a defence and and security foreign policy academic, also written biographies of Clement Attlee and other figures. Uh, So he's been a special advisor working for the Prime Minister for the last couple of years and has has been one of the key figures drawing this together. So it definitely bears a view imprint, as well as all of the many, many, many civil servants who've been working on it. And uh, as I say, it's, it's, it's an important moment, but it doesn't resolve everything, because uh, in, a, in a large sense, it kind of describes and sets out tensions as well as setting direction.
0: All right, but it comes at an interesting moment. We do have Brexit clear in a sense, not all the details of it, but it's it's definitely happened. We have a new US president, so there is some firm ground to um to pivot off, if you like. Sophia, does it mark a big change?
1: I think it does. This integrated review it's not only the most comprehensive review that's been undertaken in some time, but I think it's distinct in a number of ways. I think Firstly, it's setting a new tone for our foreign policy and I think in many ways is trying to mark a break with uh, the very kind of emotive, polarizing language uh, that has characterized the last five years of our politics um since the eu referendum the this tone that's set out in this review is is pretty pragmatic there's a hard nosed assessment of of our weaknesses as much as our strengths it's certainly not just a sort of um fantastical piece of boosterish British exceptionalism. There's a quite sombre tone uh, to this, which I I think is, is trying to usher in a new era. The other really interesting thing about it is the intersection it creates between the domestic and international policy. And obviously, foreign policy has often been sort of something seen as more of an elite exercise, kind of divorced from the everyday concerns of citizens. This review um, absolutely brings together our national, domestic and international resilience in a way that hasn't been done before. The third thing I would just highlight is, very interesting emphasis the review places on cooperation, that uh, yes, we're leaving the European Union, but we will continue to express our power and, and influence through a lot of other alliances and, and working with others. So it's it's a totally clean break from a lot of the kind of very politicised emotional conversation that we've been having a- around the Brexit debate. And um, hopefully I think we'll be a bit of a fresh start.
0: You've written a lot about the Indo-Pacific tilt of a review, which sounds like a, a bit of jargon. But I mean, this really is a marked change, isn't it, saying that we're going to put a lot of attention and some military resources on that region of the world. How much of a change is that in itself?
1: Well, it's really interesting because the Indo-Pacific tilt was one of the most heavily trailed aspects of the review. We've heard different senior government figures talking about this uh, really for some time of the past year. And in many ways, I think there was an expectation that there would be some sort of very substantive military and and security framework around this. But actually, what the review presents is, is a more balanced picture Firstly, it makes clear that European regional security will remain our fundamental paradigm. But I do think that the government recognizes they were perhaps a little bit slow off the mark to recognizing the, the really significant shift um, of, of dynamism in the global economy to the Indo-Pacific. And, and insofar as that, I think the review sets out... Ambitions to express our presence in the region, not just in terms of, you know, how many aircraft carriers we have there and so on, but but really in terms of our trading partnerships, new partnerships on climate change. Uh, We're applying for partner status at um, ASEAN, so I think it's it's trying to say that the presence that we will have in the Indo-Pacific is not going to be going head to head with Pacific powers, which I think was one of the big unanswered questions ahead of the review, Um, but that we are going to try and be the leading European presence in the region, um, which of course is a whole other kettle of fish and opens some interesting questions about uh, what because the EU itself, a number of their member states have been setting out Indo-Pacific strategies. Now, uh, the EU's foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell, has come out and said the EU itself needs to have an Indo-Pacific strategy. So I think think we can expect that this will be an area of further, perhaps, negotiation with the EU moving forward. Well, I'm going to come back to
0: you on that. But, John, I want to ask you whether you think the prime minister has got the balance right on China in particular, because you know, drawing on, on what the review says, but also on what Sophia has just been saying. It sounds as if it could be mixed messages. On the one hand, we may put an ar- aircraft carrier in the region. On the other hand, we very much want to trade with China.
3: I'm not at all sure that the Prime Minister understands what the integrator review was about. Um, his statement to the Commons yesterday was limp, flaccid, uh, an attempt to noise up the opposition on the deterrent it had no story. It had no strong point of view. And it felt a lot like the document, which although John Bew, Professor John Bew, uh, has uh, some some authorial credit for it, there isn't a strong tone of voice through this. I, uh, For the purpose of FOI, when I was an advisor, I had to read um, the original drafts of John Knotts' defense review from the 1980s, early 1980s. That had a strong and powerful and personal uh, voice through it. In fact, it was so personal that uh, he eventually resigned as Secretary of State because of the consequence of some of the decisions. This doesn't feel like an author piece. So much of it is cut and paste. So much of it is gesture and not content. So little of it is hard choices. On, Ch- on China, I think it's strikingly clear, uh, which is that outside the three major competing uh, power blocks and economic powers uh, of the world, outside the US, outside uh, the European Union, outside of China, Britain is choosing to be utterly, totally and completely pragmatic about China. I think Dominic Raab made the most memorable statement of the whole day uh, of the launch of the Space Review when he, when he said to the BBC, China's here to stay. That effectively is now the government policy. China's here to stay. It's not going anywhere. It's very big. We need to trade with it. We have to accommodate ourselves to it. And then there's the, what there are are indications. You know, the, is it an Indo-Pacific tilt or is it an acknowledgement by the UK that it, it, it is the ownership of nuclear, uh, nuclear deterrent by India, which is a balancing item uh, to China's nuclear power uh, in Asia?
0: Kath, what do you make of it? And I'm, I'm particularly looking at this question about, about China, whether we've got the balance right.
4: I mean, I can't speak to China itself. I think John's right to some extent that some of this is about catching up with um, conditions in the world that were already happening. And you see this throughout with, you know, defence reviews as they used to be, and then strategic defence reviews and strategic defence and security reviews that, that, you know, have now morphed into the integrated review, where some of it is about Britain catching up with trends that were already happening and sort of trying to articulate what it now means for the way in which, you know, British government is going to gear resources in a new way or anything like that. And I think that's something that, you know, we should discuss, I'm sure we're about to discuss about this isn't just about putting it all in one document. It's about what that actually means. As John says, it's hard choices. We might say it's about implementation and so forth. But I think what is notable about this is that it is... You know, as Sophia's been talking about, it is trying to articulate perhaps a new direction that a lot of defence reviews haven't managed to do. And I agree with you know, I can hear what John's saying, but I think actually there is a slightly different tone to some of this. But yes, perhaps not an authorial voice, but it is you know becoming more and more. You know, the nature of an integrated review is that you're trying to bring together so many different parts of Whitehall, and that's that's very hard to do with just one minister's voice even just the prime minister's voice so i think there is a bit of a a tilt that's going on here and the other thing to remember is this isn't just a document that is about what it means for the uk a lot of foreign policy is about how you're articulating to nations around the world what you're going to do what your strategy is there's all sorts of, of work that goes into that by other countries and they'll be looking at this document to interpret what we're doing in the future
0: alex your thoughts on the china question the china balance
2: i I think it's i mean, John hinted at this but it's 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 a recognition of reality i mean i I agree with John that well, the uh the, the rob uh, statement that that china wasn't going away was uh, striking and important uh it's a country that the uk is going to have to uh, deal with and i think it's better that we're thinking about it in a more uh sort of big picture strategic way so that we can align our individual policy choices that we that we make i think the the risk with a country like like china is you sort of stumble into a relationship either of antagonism or too much cozying up through all of these individual specific flashpoints so we 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 saw uh, uh a year and a bit ago, the Huawei decisions, um, we've, we've had debates about investment in nuclear power stations. A lot of that has felt kind of very issue by issue. So I think it's good that the government has recognised that China is here. It's not going anywhere. But again, it comes back to what for me was one of the themes of the review, which is that the document was quite good at articulating tensions. But I'm not sure how uh, much it's really given beyond some top priorities like climate change, for example. It's really a guide for decision making.
0: I just want to say on this point about China because it seems to me that's a very good example of what you're talking about. It's it's a it, you've got you've got uh, on the one hand on the other hand as opposed mm. to a strategy you've got uh, we want to trade with them but we may put an aircraft carrier there we want to rescue the Hinckley power station we we definitely want to do something about about our um, our trade with China and so on um, is this really a strategy I mean Sophia what what do you Think about this. Is this really a map for how the UK should take decisions when all these things come in, whether it's um, the treatment of Uyghurs or Hong Kong on one hand, and the um, need for more trade relationships after Brexit on the other?
1: Hmm. I mean, I have been calling for the government to develop a dedicated UK-China engagement strategy. And I think in many ways, events have forced their hands. Um, You know, the situation in Hong Kong, I think, forced the government to sort of take a stance and and really step up to the plate in a way that perhaps I think they were probably hoping they could um, be starting to have those conversations and getting to that thinking after the review itself was published. So um, I think that does speak to you know what they would probably consider to be a balanced approach that they're taking. Something I would note is the um, high degree of coordination with the China policy expressed in the review and uh, the early signals we're hearing from Tony Blinken. And Biden Secretary of State. His speech last week set out this framework of China as a competitor, collaborator and adversary. And I think that's very similar language to what you see in this review. I mean, the fact is, there's no easy answer on China. Um, many of our other closest allies are in uh, in a similar struggle themselves. I think what you will see is, is China. Is actually implicit in a lot of other areas of the review. For example, I think a lot of the thinking that led to this integration of domestic and international resilience was actually the recognition that um, you know China and our other adversaries certainly don't put hard lines between these spaces in this age of kind of hybrid and grey zone warfare. You know, our whole society, our democracy you know, our economy can be an entry point for political coercion. I think the government has had that um, realization moment. So I think China's implicit in a lot of the resilience agenda. I do also think that a lot of the Indo-Pacific agenda is not framed in terms of us being, you know, very explicitly uh, challenging towards China, but in strengthening our relationships and our presence and particularly I think the emphasis that's placed on us kind of leading those conversations about new forms of governance and keeping open and liberal trade and safe passage and so on, all of that is implicitly um, challenging China's dominance in the region. So I think China is really soaked through this um, mm. review. But yes, I think uh, it's very interesting the way in which they have explicitly pursued a balanced approach. And mm. let's not forget that some of the biggest you know, their biggest challenges and uh, criticism on this will be coming from their own backbenches.
0: Yes. Well, there's not going to be an easy answer to that one. Let me just take you on to one of um, the the biggest surprise, if I can put it that way, in this whole review, which was the lifting of the cap on nuclear warheads, uh, taking us up to perhaps 260 nuclear warheads, and that abandons the target reduction to 180 by the mid-2020s. Why?
1: Yeah, so I think the story about the um, in- in- increasing our uh, nuclear arsenal, I think, did take some people by surprise. I think in some ways it reflects the fact that the defense story in the review is further along down the track because, of course, they secured that multi-year um, huge cash injection in the autumn, whereas um, the rest of the sort of foreign policy aspects of the review are, uh, are stuck in this um, difficult financial situation and kind of one-year funding uh, settlements. My understanding is that some of the intention around that uh, increase in our nuclear arsenal is firstly, it's seen as sort of levelling up a little bit because we uh, have had a lower stock than some of our other peers. And secondly, I think it's very much something that should be interpreted in the renewed emphasis in this review on our leadership in NATO so that we are positioning ourselves um to be working hand-in-hand hand with the United States in, in leading NATO. And I think a lot of uh, the increase here in our nuclear capability is actually about increasing our capacity to defend Um, and act as a deterrent not only for UK security, but the whole of the European region. So in many ways, I would see this as um, something reflecting perhaps, you know, John Bue, we've mentioned him before. Let's not forget he's been heavily involved in a lot of the strategic work that's been taking place in NATO recently. So um, for me, that's what this story says. But yes, it did send some interesting signals, I think, to the global community, and I think a few people felt a little bit caught off guard. Kath, I
0: wanted to ask you in particular, I mean, look, this didn't leak. Um, It took the establishment by surprise. Does it show that some secrets actually stay secret?
4: Well, it does. And I mean, uh, of the parts of the MOD that perhaps you would want to leak the least are those that are charged with dealing with the nuclear deterrent. So that maybe give us some cause for comfort. But I think there's an important context to all of this, which is the UK is actually in the midst of, and it's not even really got started on it, going through a major uh, re-examination of its nuclear deterrent. It's got to get round to renewing the submarines, uh, the missiles, and importantly, the warheads. And that's an important context to all of this because Part of that is about how dependent we are on the US, and so we're currently sort of talking to them about purchasing warheads from them. So there's some talk about is actually the context for this increasing the warheads part of that conversation to show that to the US that we're we're serious about it. But it also it comes down to again, you know, we just mentioned it a wider context for all of this, which is the government has to get on with that program. It can take sort of you know 17 plus years to actually get round to renewing the deterrent. Uh, And it's been a decision that's been put off for, for the best part of a decade now. So this is also about showing determination on that, that perhaps they will get round to having the all important votes in Parliament on that and getting on with it. And I mean, again, you know, this is my PhD was on this topic. Nuclear decisions are never just about the deterrent themselves. They are also about how you're sort of received at the top table, what other people are doing in this place, and also about retaining expertise in the country on these issues to make sure that you are sort of a respected part of the nuclear club going forward.
0: Yeah. So, Kath, I think you're making an important point there about what we want to do to gain the support of the U.S. and to um, reassure the U.S. about our alliance, if you like. And and I absolutely accept the, the sense that these uh, nuclear issues can go on for decades. I feel I spent uh, years of my life on this as well. But, John, what do you make of this? You know, w- w- Britain has made for a long time something of its claim to be the most progressive, if you like, of, of, of the nuclear weapons power, saying, look, we're, we're going to be committed to reducing uh, the numbers of warheads and, and this reverses this and also Kath was saying um, and, and, and Sophia were relying incidentally on bu- buying a lot of stuff from the U.S. that hasn't actually been created yet. How much reality should um, the world uh, see in this?
3: The nuclear program has been intimately connected with the, the U.S. Since, since 1958. The mutual defense agreement which I went to the 50th Anniversary celebration of it is one of the deepest relationships that, that that there is militarily in the world between any two great powers. So the, the deterrent has always been in had that deep connection, and I, I've got little doubt that the increase is to give the headroom for the new warhead, which is which has not yet been developed. The, the American warhead, the W ninety three. That will have a bigger payload, and in the U.S., that doesn't really matter because if they've got um a bigger payload on their boats, uh, they can uh take off some uh, other part, of, you know, other part of their arsenal. Uh, but we don't have cruise missiles, we don't have ICBMs, we don't have uh a- airdropped nu- uh, nuclear weapons. We simply have uh, have Trident, and so th- I think that's all it is. But one one felt there wasn't a big story about this deterrent why do we have it we have it because we have it um and there was an element of a leaning into it'd be nice to annoy the Labour Party to show that they're not really in favor of it but the I think it is part of the UK's commitment uh to be a, a key player in NATO and I think that is that does tie one of the themes together which is you know this is, has been an attempt to tell the post brexit story of, of, uh, of the United Kingdom, and one of them is that the, our defence uh, security rests in NATO, and not in in the European Union. So I, I think I think it will pl- it will be it will play play well. I think the problem, is, as ever, there wasn't really a story either in the defence about this and why, and there wasn't a story from the Prime Minister. He couldn't. He can't tell why he's for this tent in a way that I think other previous prime ministers have known where it fits within their broad vision of defence.
0: And there are a lot of questions, as you (laughs) say. I mean, it it raises up questions about when we would use this. Um, There's a hint in there, not more than a hint, uh, that we might use it against against non-nuclear attacks. And people have taken that as meaning possibly against cyber attacks. And the the defence establishment has sort of reared up and said, well, really? Uh, do, Do you mean this? Alex, does it leave a, a lot of questions for you? Um, I, I mean, I was going to say, it,
2: it, I, I agree with everything that um, John and others were saying about the sort of big picture story uh, uh, around it. And it is striking that having spent much of the last you know, 10, 15 years debating the nuclear deterrent, it's, it, it just doesn't feature at the moment. The, the, the other aspect, I mean, I'm sure John's right, and there was a bit of politics in uh, sort of taunting the Labour front bench, which is the main thing the Prime Minister seemed to be uh, enjoying in his uh, statement in Parliament. I, I wonder if there's also a Bit of politics around the union on it as well. Obviously, the location of the submarines is a, you know, plays into Scotland uh, and Scot- Scottish issues. I also think um the you know membership of NATO five hundred jobs going up to Scotland it, it, jobs, but also uh, that that can the UK's place on the world. We're bigger uh, together. We we have a bigger place in the world as a nuclear power, and that is a UK power, not an England or England and Wales power. So I think that that that's part of it as well. But there are a lot of things kind of flowing around here none of which have been uh, as john was saying kind of turned into a a compelling story sophia i mean what do you make of on the one hand the cut to the army um
0: what our allies are going to make of that and on the other hand the investment in cyber artificial intelligence and in space you know on the one hand it sounds like modernizing the um the, the, the military very much as the prime minister stood up and said that, um, that this review was doing on the other hand people might say look this is putting bits of small, comparatively small bits of money all over the place, and um, those we might be, um, you know, challenged by, we're actually putting bigger amounts of money into all these things five years ago, and it feels a bit late while we're cutting conventional forces.
1: I think this is partly, you know, coming back to this integration um, that is explicitly made really between global Britain and levelling up. So the investments that are being made in technology, science, R&D, innovation, commercialization of research, these are the common threads between both of these agendas. And so I think in terms of the reimagining of our defence forces, I think this is actually linked to a much broader project around assessing the UK's strengths and capabilities in, a tw- in the 21st century and so much of this comes back to this idea that you know we can't do everything. we're never going to be able to go head to head on many aspects of the sort of hardware and a traditional sense of, of military warfare. but that the things we could genuinely lead on and, and the strengths that we already have are really sort of in, in human capital. and and our digital and innovation kind of capability. So I think there's this idea that we're sort of, we need to future-proof not only our defence forces, but our economy and so on. And, you know, I mentioned earlier about this threat of hybrid warfare. I think that is something where the UK really feels that the grey zone, the the shift to this grey zone where, you know, a lot of the threats are actually playing out in in the digital world, that this is firstly where our adversaries have really been ahead of the game. I mean, you know, Russia has partly kept its relevance as a security threat because it's been so adept at, at cyber. And we've seen some really distressing developments. I mean, you know, there was that case rather recently where actually hackers were able to poison a town's water supply um all of this you know is is something that i think britain looks at and obviously feels a huge degree of trepidation about but also mm-hmm. thinks this is somewhere this, uh, you know this is an aspect where we we really can claim to be world leading so i think they're trying mm-hmm. to future proof not only the military but but the british economy in in that respect
0: well, thanks for that. I, I must confess to feeling a degree of scepticism about whether the amounts of money and the timing is, is enough. But Alex, we learn more next week. The government's going to give us some details. Uh, what should we look out for?
2: Yes, yeah, so there's some uh, more details on the defence paper is, is is coming out. And so uh, on that, I, I think we can expect the debate to be around, uh, you know, army numbers and reductions to the army, and some of these more sort of uh, traditional, if you like, aspects of integrated reviews. I did I did just want to mention uh, briefly that the, the fact that development spend, the, the, the gaps in the review, though, I think, that, I think there are a few gaps that stood out. But one of the biggest, given all of the debate around it, is development spending. It was almost like, you know, for good reason, the government is embarrassed about it there was barely any reference to the soft power um, benefits of development spending
0: in fact it wrote the review almost as if the cut in uh, development spending wasn't happening
2: yeah exactly exactly so i think that won't be next week in the defense paper but i think that is going to play out politically uh, for a long time to come And, and and if the government wants to sustain that they'll need to win a vote in parliament on it
0: With that, let's turn from soldiers and foreign threats to the police and threats on our streets. The horrific murder of Sarah Everard has prompted a real outpouring of grief and anger. Last weekend, a vigil was held on Clapham Common against the advice of the Metropolitan Police. Their response was to remove women from the gathering, some in handcuffs, some pinned to the floor. Cressida Dick, the Met's chief commissioner, has faced calls to quit, but the Prime Minister has backed her. So what happens next? Sophia you tweeted that this would have been a peaceful covid secure event if it had been permitted and pointed out that women needed and deserved that catharsis what did you make of what happened
1: yes well i mean i i think it was just completely unnecessary you had actually a a, a movement with with clear organizers who were willing to work directly with the police to create an event that could you know meet the particular requirements of of the time being the fact that we're in a pandemic um and there were absolutely protocols that could have been put in place to ensure that it was a peaceful event and i you know i think as a woman i myself and and uh, all the other women in my life uh, you know it's it's difficult to express how visceral the experience of of kind of the the sort of Collective experience of, of, um, I suppose, going through the trauma of Sarah Everett's tragic passing. And I think how that's made everybody reflect on our own experiences. And I think there was a moment people did need to express that and and it would have been done in a peaceful way. And I just think this was a huge judgment call mistake because, of course, what happened was as soon as they banned the protest, um, they really politicized it. That strength of feeling. Um, That was held amongst women didn't diminish, but there just wasn't a peaceful and controlled outlet for it. And, you know, of course, as soon as you ban things as well, you sort of tap in, there's a whole industry of protest and outrage, these sort of professional protesters who go around to every event. And it was many of them that had actually led to some of the disruption that in the end, uh, you know, obviously provoked these very unfortunate scenes with the police. So, I just think it was a huge strategic error. And not only that, I think we really missed an opportunity for, for people to come together at a time when they really needed to. So I think not, not just a kind of political cost, but I think there was a huge social cost to the decisions that were taken.
0: John, you were at Clapham Common. What do you think?
3: I thought that the, there were lots of failures. The police fundamentally misunderstood their role Their role is not to enforce laws. Their role is to maintain public order. And they violated uh, the contract between them uh, and the public and violates the contract between them and very visibly the women who were demonstrating. And they did it under the cover of the COVID laws. They didn't do that on the Black Lives Matters demonstrators, a demonstration I also attended. Um, They didn't do that to the uh, the White Counts demonstration, the All Lives Matters demonstration,, uh, but they chose uh, the the police choose to chose to use, to show that they were a police force against women. so a very bad miscalculation um and uh, also, I think there was a failure on the part of the mayor. The mayor should have used political authority uh, as the um, the police and crime commissioner for London to actually not just delegate this to talk between the the demonstration and the police, but to actually make it absolutely clear publicly. What he wanted to see, which was a a, a, a peaceful, a, a, peaceful dem- a peaceful demonstration.
0: All right, but look, look. The police would say, look, this isn't cover. They're being, uh, and, and, and indeed um, senior police officers have said we're being put in an impossible position. Uh, we're being asked to make these decisions, which actually should not be ours, about uh, which to allow, which to. Uh, go ahead with. We're simply trying to enforce the rules, which are clear to ban gatherings. I mean, Alex, what what do you make of this? How much of this is to, is to do with coronavirus?
2: So I think I think I agree, I agree largely with John that it it shouldn't be to do with coronavirus. I mean, there's some there's there's a lively debate going on about the extent to which the regulations actually do prohibit protests and vigils. But I mean, regardless of all of that, uh, there's there's some ambiguity, it seems, to to put it kindly, between human rights law and, and rules that, that allow the right to protest and uh, and the extent to which that constitutes a reasonable excuse or not for being out and, and about. Um, but I, I, I think the police are right that it's not for them to uh, set those rules. And I do have sympathy that they're in a difficult position, particularly the officers on the ground, when you get into a um, in, into a, a context like this but senior police officers are intelligent people they are used to operating in a contested and politicized space uh, and their judgments need to be consistent and clear and it is very hard to see how uh, a vigil or a protest like this is you know any more dangerous or more difficult to police safely than some of the other protests that John was talking about and it's a uh, it, it, it's a sort of failure on, on, on all counts I, I i really can't understand why the met didn't take the perfectly uh, good uh, uh, solution that that seemed to be on offer earlier in the weekend and in the run up to the weekend uh, of a negotiated solution, COVID secure protest, agreement on timings, loudspeakers so people didn't have to crowd in together. That just seems to me to be a a misjudgment, yes, by the mayor and the politicians, but but also by by those who knew they'd be in the front line and, and whose offices would be in the front line.
0: Well, Kath, whose, whose responsibility was it? Was it the politicians, uh, whether or not to approve this uh, the, 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 this protest um, and exempt it from uh, coronavirus regulations? Or should it all fall on the police, as it kind of is at the moment?
4: Uh, no, it shouldn't all fall on the police. I think you've got different moments that you've got to examine the responsibility. There's first the the reason why they wanted to try and prevent the vigil going ahead, um, in the way that Reclaim the Streets had planned for it or a negotiated version of that, why, why it went to court, why they didn't try and resolve that. And that's a question for the Met, but it's also a question for whether any politicians were talking to the Met or even in the run up to that had been putting more pressure on them of you must stop protests. But I think the other thing that we're talking about here is it's not just whether or not you should intervene. Cressida Dick's response was that her officers felt public safety was at risk. They had to intervene. It's also how you intervene. I mean, uh, John, you were there. I wasn't. Sophia, I don't know if you were, but um, it looked from the pictures like they were sort of forcing the crowd closer together by a line of police. Now, that is obviously decreasing the amount of social distancing that was going on. Um, We know also, as you you said at the top, Robin, that that when they went in to take people away you've got to know that that's going to lead to those kinds of pictures. So it's also a question of not just when you intervene, it's it's how you go about doing it. And I think, therefore, there's questions for those in command on the ground, there's questions for their superiors, there's questions for President Dick, but there's also questions for the government in terms of the sort of overarching tone that they've given to the Met on this stuff. Because remember you know, the guidance versus law on how to use public order to enforce what is effectively a public health issue, coronavirus, has been a problem throughout. And different police forces have been taking different responses. And most of the time, politicians in public say that that's what they want to see. They want to see judgments. So if they're putting pressure in a different direction, then that needs to be answered for.
0: All right. So that's one thing that government possibly can do. But I, I just um, want to take us all into... The general question of what government can do about what many people say needs to be a change in culture, needs to be a change in in how um, all parts of society treat the safety of women women and girls. Sophia, for example, the government has relaunched its consultation on tackling violence against women and girls, its strategy for that. And it's it's got a big increase in respondents. How useful do you think this is?
1: Well, I'm very glad to see them doing it. Um, I think, you know, it's rare to have one of those feelings of sort of a very responsive government, and I think reopening uh, the consultation was a good thing and and struck the right tone. Um, But do you know what? I mean, look, it, it, it sent the right message to say we're listening, but I think women are just really tired because fundamentally We just don't believe that the structures, particularly of the criminal justice system, are there in place to support women's safety. And we talk about violence so often in this kind of most extreme manifestation, you know, the the murder of an innocent young woman. But there's violence in a lot of aspects more implicit in the way in which women have to go about their daily lives. And, you know, I think there is a kind of violence in the idea of a criminal justice system that certainly is not on women's side. It, it feels that the barriers to reporting and, and you know, let alone convictions for any kinds of sexual harassment and and, and sexual assault and violence just uh, seem to be getting higher and higher. And, and they're doesn't seem to be any willingness to really structurally deal with that, and in fact, we've actually seen a sort of backsliding on some areas. I want to get
0: onto the the um, because we're trying to, we're talking about what government can actually do, and we have something called the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill in the Commons uh, being being debated at the moment in the Commons. Alex, do you think that
2: this addresses any of these issues? I mean, it's more focused on, uh, protests. I mean, it's, it's a, it, in the right to uh, protest or sections of it are. I mean, it's a, it's a huge Home Office, uh, bill. It took me back to the sort of New Labour days when, when John was in, uh, uh, in, in government, when you'd have a, a big bill like this covering all sorts of aspects of, aspects of the Home Office and cr- criminal justice, uh, coming through, uh, regularly. Um, uh, the, the attention has been focused on what it means for, Policing and and and, and, and protests. Um, uh, I, I think there's there's obviously an opportunity, not necessarily in in this bill, to uh, look at some of the laws that that, that apply in this area. My sense, though, it's obviously changes to the law is good, but actually it's about investment in. Uh, the criminal justice uh, system. It's about the way the courts operate. Um, it's about uh, what the uh, Crown Prosecution Service does. There's quite a lot of stuff that isn't isn't going to be resolved by laws, and it's about culture, process, procedure. Uh, I, I think so. A, a thoroughgoing examination of that is is, is going to be really important.
0: Yeah. And John, your thoughts about this bill, which which is a wide bill and has a lot of elements about pl- uh, police powers that are raising concern in the Commons and Lords.
3: I think the the bill the bill seemed incredibly mistimed. I think it was a it was it was very good political uh, punch and duty for Secure Starmer to be able to say that the uh, the penalty the maximum penalty for uh, uh, attacking a statue da- damaging a statue uh, was going to be larger than the um, the average uh, conviction uh, for for rape. And I think there's something in there's something in the bill which is it speaks to. And it's one of many, many, many crime bills that have been passed by go- extensive governments, including the Labour government, I was part of, which, which seems to see, to, seems to see passing new laws as being the way to re-establish public confidence uh, in law and order. And yet, if you go to the issue of violence against women, it, it takes six months for a domestic violence uh, case. Uh, to get to the, to the magistrate's court once it's decided to be placed there for the for the actual abuser uh, alleged abuser to get there it takes 18 months for the police to investigate the DPS done on defended There's actually some very practical steps that can be done that improve the functioning. You know, more open, longer opening hours at magistrate's courts, a bit more resource to the DPS, um, more police focused and resource on domestic violence, and there being more intervention to remove abusers or to provide. Uh, accommodation for, for 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 the for the survivors of abuse. So it, it's it's a it's a very powerful example of a thing which this government really majors in, which is talking not acting, uh, of, of headlines not detailed, grinding reform and change. And if you're going to change the culture, I thought the words of the prime minister at the very beginning uh, of uh, prime minister's question of this week. Which echoed the words of Keir Starmer, were actually excellent in pointing to the fact that this requires a fundamental change of the culture of our country, a fundamental change in the behaviour of men, young men, uh, and boys, and the way boys are brought up, and the, boy, the way that m- the men are socialised, and the way that men socialised.
0: Well, it's, it's it's brought out it's brought out a lot of things in. Um... No, in the, in, the, in, the, in the past week or two, in, 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 including this uh, Everyone's Invited uh, online campaign about uh, accounts of sexual assault and harassment, which my teenage daughter has been very exercised about. Kath, just your, your final thoughts. How much is this something for government to um, tackle and how much something that society generally has to tackle?
4: Well, it has to be both. I mean, obviously, and the government needs to lead on that, because as we've been talking about today, there's there's huge problems um across criminal justice, across our political system, across social media, you know, and I mean, we were talking about an integrated review earlier. The, the, the important thing would be that you start to think about these sorts of problems in a similar kind of way. But yes, some of it is about culture as well. And, and a lot of the conversations in the last week have been about women also talking to men and saying, you know, about what they need in terms of um, allies and support and so forth, and and not just countering those men who who are the ones who are sort of committing these acts. But I think there's we have such deeper problems. I mean, we've been talking about Parliament this week and it's been noted for perhaps process reasons as much as anything else, but it took 20 minutes in Prime Minister's questions before um, a female MP spoke. Women MPs are still only 34%. Um, I think in cabinet committees, it's down to about sort of 20 percent. Some don't have any women in them at all. Boris Johnson, or at least through briefing, has said he acknowledges this. And if there's a reshuffle, he'll get more women in. Um, But throughout Covid, one of the things we've been talking about were were there enough women at the top making decisions there. So um, it has to be led by the government. And that means that you've got to have a government that does understand what it's talking about. And, uh, you know, as John says, knows how to take action rather than just talk about this so that in another few years, we're yet again facing an awful case and yet again talking about how frustrated we are.
0: Well, thank you for that. Uh, we'll have to look forward to any reshuffle that may uh, may come to see what um, happens about it, your predictions. But sadly, that is it for this edition of Inside Briefing. So my huge thanks to Kath Haddon, John McTurnan, Alex Thomas, and above all to Sophia Gaston. Brilliant to have you all with us. If you enjoyed this podcast, then head to IFG Live, our sister podcast channel. Check out the lots of great new episodes heading that way, including an event on the spread of misinformation, the very opposite of the service we're providing today. You can listen to all our podcasts at iTunes, ACAST, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please do leave us a review too, integrated or otherwise. And check out all our work at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. Who knows, in a few weeks' time, you might just be talking about it all in person, in a beer gun. Here's hoping. Have a good weekend.